Today we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ who rose from the dead nearly 2,000 years ago. The Friday before, he was crucified on a hill called Golgotha and he hung for six excruciating hours on a cross before breathing his last and yielding his spirit. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus took him down from the cross and wrapped him in linen wrappings and buried him in a new grave carved into a cave in a nearby garden. And then the soldiers came and rolled a heavy stone across the mouth of the cave, planted a guard so that no one would tamper with the body. And then there was that long, somber Saturday when Christ's disciples mourned and wondered, had they been mistaken? Was Christ indeed the Messiah, or had they wasted three years of their life and placed their hope into a good man that was nothing more than a martyr? But then three brave women rose before dawn on Sunday and went to the place where they had laid him to anoint his body. And there, when they came expecting the closed grave, an angel appeared to them and said, seeing from the stone that he had rolled away, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. This Jesus who had suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified, dead, and buried, did indeed raise on the third day. And this is why we celebrate Easter. It has nothing to do with bunnies and eggs and chocolates. It has to do with the Son of God who died on the cross for our sins and rose again from the grave on the third day. But Easter is more than an event that we celebrate annually. It's also a reality that we should live out daily. That Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the grave, not merely to pay the penalty for sins, but to break the power of sin so that sinners redeemed by him might walk in newness of life. And so I invite you to open your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 6, which is going to instruct us, exhort us, and encourage us to embrace our new identity as those who have died to sin but risen to walk in newness of life. Look at verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Romans 6 opens with a misunderstanding of the relationship between grace and sin. Because Paul at the end of chapter 5 had explained that one of the reasons that God gave the law of Moses was to make them more aware of the violations against his holy character. In a sense, multiplying the transgressions so that this would magnify the grace of God who temporarily forgave their sins through the slaying of animals on altars, ultimately leading up to the forgiveness of all our sins through the sacrifice of his son on a cross. And so Paul says at the end of chapter 5, the law came in so that the transgression would increase where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So when our teenagers start driving, we take them through driver's ed, and they become more aware of the manifold traffic laws that are out there. And that should make them more conscious of the many violations and transgressions that they commit as young, zealous drivers. And this should make them more appreciative of the leniency of the officers when they give them warnings rather than citations. But we tend to lean on the leniency of law enforcement officers. We tend to presume their grace 
and we as sinners do the same, that when we hear that there is a forgiving God who gives grace, we presume upon it and say, oh, well, then it must be okay to keep in sin because God will forgive it because Christ has forgiven it. And now rather than using grace as a means of escaping sin, we use grace as a reason, as an excuse for continuing in sin. And that ought not be. The logic is twisted. The premise is the idea of, well, grace is good, and where there's more sin, there's more grace, so we continue sinning, right? And that would be like someone going to their doctor say, well, medicine is good, and with more sickness comes more medicine, so we should continue in sickness that the medicine may increase, right? It's crazy. It's destructive. It may be lethal. And so Paul corrects this misconception with a very strong, emphatic negative. May it never be. Absolutely not. For he asked, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? He assumes a fact, a truth that they've forgotten that has led to this misunderstanding that somehow because of Good Friday, we get to walk in continued sin rather than saying because of Good Friday and Easter Sunday, we die to sin to walk in newness of life. And then he goes on to explain what he means by this. Look at verses three and four. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Paul says that every Christian has been baptized into Christ Jesus. That is, we have been identified with him. We have been united with him in a spiritual way so that things that are true of Christ become true of us. He said the same thing to the Galatians. All of you were baptized into Christ and have therefore clothed yourself with the righteousness of Christ. He told the Corinthians, by one Holy Spirit, we are all baptized into one body, the body of Christ, the church. So there is this identification with believers, with Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that things that are true of him become true of us as well. Uh, Paul's going to go on to say that when the Holy Spirit baptizes into us, we, in a sense, were buried with him. When he died on the cross, we, in a sense, died with him. When he rose from the grave, we, in a sense, rose with him. We've been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We paraphrase this in our baptism ceremonies, that when a new believer comes to obey Christ by being baptized, the officiant will typically say something like, being buried with him in the likeness of his death, and then we lower them into the water, and rising again to walk in newness of life. You may remember those words. We had a couple that was baptized a couple weeks ago, and this was just pronounced over them. And what we are doing is following God's design to physically represent and symbolize what goes on when we are identified with Christ. That just as the person is buried into the water, that represents our burial with Jesus Christ. When we died to sin, because he died to sin, and when we raise them up out of the water, that symbolizes our coming up with Christ out of the grave to walk in newness of life. That's what was going on when we were baptized. That's why we do the ceremony that we do. Now, in the early church, they made this even more poignant. Baptismal candidates would typically begin a period of intense spiritual instruction and preparation 40 days prior to Easter Sunday, which is when they were baptized, 
to identify their spiritual renewal with the coming of Christ from the grave, and this is where the tradition of Lent comes from. And then on Easter Eve, the baptismal candidates would all gather and they would pray through the night together. And then as dawn was approaching, they would go out together in a procession to the body of water where they were going to be baptized. Ideally a stream or what they called living water, running water, or sometimes a baptismal font, a pool that had been prepared. And they would face the west and they would renounce Satan and any allegiance to the forces of darkness of this world. And they would disrobe to represent that they were taking off the old person, who they used to be, their old identity before Christ. And this is why men and women were baptized separately in the early church. The men to be baptized by the bishop or the pastor and the women by a deaconess. And then they would step into the water and each individually would affirm their orthodox confession by responding to the Apostles' Creed. Do you believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? I do. And do you believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, and raised on the third day? I do. And do you believe that he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from whence he will come to judge the living and the dead? I do. And do you believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting? I do. And then they would baptize them either once or three times in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then coming out of the water, there would be anointing oil poured over their head to represent the coming of the Holy Spirit on them. Because now the Holy Spirit was living within them to conform them to the image of Christ. And then stepping out of the water, they would be given a white robe to represent that their sins, though as scarlet, had now in Christ been made as white as snow. And then they would walk to the church where their whole church family had gathered overnight and was praying for them. And when the new family members came in, there would be this cry of celebration, welcoming the new members of the family, and they would all celebrate communion together in memorial and in praise of Jesus Christ who died and rose, because in him we die and rose. Isn't that beautiful? Now, our baptisms aren't that elaborate, but they mean the exact same thing. That when we are baptized, we are symbolizing and showing and representing and reenacting that in Christ we are baptized in the likeness of his death so that we might be raised with him in the likeness of his new life so that we would no longer live as we used to do in our sinful, fleshly, worldly ways, but instead would walk in obedience and righteousness to glorify God in newness of life. That's what's going on in all this. Paul goes on now to unpack it a bit further in verses 5 through 7. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin." The gospel is more than just the promise of deliverance from hell and the promise of inheriting of eternal life. It's an emancipation proclamation that we who are in Christ don't have to live like we used to because now in Christ we have a new identity that frees us from our bondage to sin. 
as Christians, we don't have to sin anymore. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And with the temptation, God provides the way of escape as well so that you can avoid it. As Christians, we don't have to sin because we have a new nature. We are new creations in Christ. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Augustine, the North African church father, talked about four stages of humanity's relationship with sin. That when we were first created by God, we could either sin or not sin. We had a choice. We could obey God, we could not obey God. Unfortunately, Adam and Eve chose not to obey God. And as a result, all of their descendants, all of their progeny are natural born sinners. We all instinctively do what we want no matter what anyone else wants. Now, I have a good friend who's an associate pastor in Arkansas, and when his first child was born, her first two words were mine and no. <laughs> Possessiveness and rebellion against authority. When his second child was born, guess what the first two words were? Mine and no. And that just comes out of us as natural born sinners. It's mine, my time, my stuff, my way, my will, my desires, my ambitions. And if anyone tries to tell us not to do something or to do something we don't want, no. That's who we are. And we are not able not to sin. Because outside of Christ, we don't love God. We don't love the things of God. But when we repent of our sins and place in faith, our faith in Jesus Christ, we are spiritually reborn. We are born from above. We become new creations in Christ. And now we are able not to sin. It's not that we never sin, but we're able not to. We make a choice. Our disobedience becomes willful. And there is coming a glorious day when we won't be able to sin because we will be in glorified bodies on a new earth where nothing will tempt us and we will be in the presence of God and we won't want to do anything that would grieve the Spirit or pain the Father or distance ourselves from the Son. But until that day, the call of Easter is to live out who we are in Christ and not who we used to be outside of Christ. When a person is adopted, she receives new parents. She receives a new name. She becomes part of a new household. She resides under new authorities. She is going to be heir of a new inheritance. There are certain privileges that she's able to enjoy and certain responsibilities that she needs to fulfill because she's now a new person. She has a new identity and is expected to live as such. When the same way, when we are adopted into God's family, we receive a new name. We have a new heavenly father. We have a new family. We live under new authorities. We have new privileges that we enjoy. We have new responsibilities that we need to fulfill. And now we are called upon to live in who we are and not in who we were. That's what Paul's talking about here. Uh, something similar happens with naturalized citizens. So my wife was born in Vietnam during the war. And by God's grace, when Saigon fell in April of 1975, her family was able to flee to the United States, first to Fort Chaffee, Arkansas, where they were processed as refugees, then to Palacios, Texas, then to El Campo, then to Houston. And after uh, living about a decade as resident aliens, they changed their citizenship. 
they went through the process of becoming naturalized U.S. citizens. And when they did that, they renounced their old citizenship. They renounced their old identity. They, announced, they renounced their old adherence to those old laws. And they embraced instead a new citizenship with a new identity and affirmed that they would live under new laws. And in that moment, their old identity died and they inherited a new identity that they were to walk in. And they were still culturally Vietnamese, but by their citizenship, they were American and they were expected to live as such. They lived under American laws because they were now American citizens. Now the children were all under age 16, which meant that they were identified with their parents. They were legally united with their parents. In a sense, they were baptized into their parents so that what their parents did affected them. And when their parents renounced their Vietnamese citizenship, guess what? My wife and her siblings lost theirs too. And when her parents swore the oath of allegiance to America, guess what? All five kids became Americans too. And when the parents were now obligated to obey the American laws, not the Vietnamese laws, guess what of the kids? The exact same thing. Because what was true of the parents became true of them. And that's what happens to us when we become a Christian. Our old self died, our old identity dies, our old allegiance died, our old sins died, and now we are to walk in the new identity that God graciously gives us. Does that make sense? Isn't that a beautiful, powerful picture? And so the call of Paul to the gospel is, live out who you are, not who you were. Live out who you are, not who you were. Look at verses 8 through 11. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death is no longer master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, and here comes the first command, the first imperative in the book of Romans. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Because we are. Because we are. When we repent of our sins and embrace Jesus Christ as our Savior by grace through faith, we are identified with him and we get a new identity. Our old person dies, a new person is born, and now for the rest of our life, the challenge, the conviction is, consider yourself dead because you are. Consider yourself alive because you are. And therefore, don't live in who you were. Live in who you are. And so every day, we get certain calls that we ignore and certain calls that we receive. And so if you're like me, you get a number of robocalls every day, and you not only ignore them, what do you do? Block them. Report as spam. Curse them. You know, pronounce maledictions against them. But then we also have certain calls that we always take. And so even when I have my phone on do not disturb, if it's knock, if it's Rachel, if it's Michael, their calls always come through. I always take their calls. And what this verse is telling us to do is when sin tries to call you again, don't take that call. That's someone that means you ill. That's someone that intends you harm. That's your old master trying to bring you back into old destructive ways. Don't take that call, block it. But when God calls, when the Spirit urges, when the Word tells you to do something, 
Always take that call. Always listen to that voice. Always heed that instruction. Consider yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ because this is who you are. Now this sounds a bit mysterious and mystical, but it's something that all of us are familiar with and that many of us have done. So next month, Nock and I will have been married 30 years, which is hard to believe. Yeah. On May 28, 1994, Nock Kim No and John Robert Brown entered separately into the sanctuary of Denton Bible Church at 1900 North University Drive. And there we approached an altar separately. And I said some vows, and she said some vows, and the pastor said some words, and in that moment, Bachelor John died. And Mary John was born. At that moment, Bachelorette Knock died. And Mary Knock was born. Knock Kim No was no longer. She was now Knock Brown. And we walked down that aisle, not separately, but together. Because we now had a new identity as husband and wife. And then we came back from the honeymoon. And like with all of y'all who've been married, the wedding starts turning into a marriage. And you start realizing that even though I am a married man, how am I still living? Like a bachelor. And she is now a married woman, but how is she still living? Like a bachelorette. And so what does it take for us to have a happy marriage? We have to consider ourselves dead in our singleness and alive in our married identity. So for me, I could no longer be as quiet as I was accustomed to spending as much alone time as I was accustomed and I had to up my game with regards to hygiene and cleanliness. <laughs> and I had to daily consider myself, I don't get to do what I used to do as a bachelor because I'm not a bachelor anymore. That's not my identity anymore. That person's dead and gone. And Nock had to not stay up as late and start waking up as early. She said she's lost years of her life being married to me. And she had to never again season scrambled eggs with fish sauce because as a Vietnamese person, that's what you do. But it turned me off eggs for a year. And what all of us had to learn to do daily was to consider ourselves dead in our singlehood and embrace our new identity as a married person. Not because we were playing house. We weren't living together. That's who we were. That was our new identity. And that's what Paul's saying here. That's what God is telling to do us here. Stop living as who you were. You're not that person anymore. Stop living, start living as who you are in Christ. Because of Good Friday, because of Easter, your old sinful self has died. Your new resurrected self has come. Consider yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Look at verses 12 through 14. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Verses 12 to 14 tell us two things not to do, two things to do instead, and then a reason why. First, 
We mustn't let rain, sin reign in our bodies so that we obey its lust. We mustn't continue to live in slavery to sin because we're not slaves to sin anymore. When God delivered Israel out of Egypt with the Exodus, how crazy would it have been to continue for them to continue to subject themselves to Pharaoh? To continue to go and to break their bodies laying brick without straw? To continue to lay their firstborn sons in the river to kill them? They don't have to obey that heinous ruler anymore because they don't belong to him anymore. They've been redeemed. When the Emancipation Proclamation went out in the Civil War, for someone to continue to live as a slave when they knew that they had been liberated is crazy. We don't do that. And so don't do it with sin. Sin is not your master anymore. You've been liberated. Live as such. You've been emancipated. Enjoy your freedom. Don't continue presenting your bodies as slaves to sin because you're not a slave to sin anymore. Isn't that freeing news? You're not bound to your addictions anymore because of Easter. You don't have to continue harming and injuring others in those old sinful ways because of Easter. You don't have to continue those self-destructive habits that you built up because of Easter. You're free. Live as such. Likewise, we aren't to go on presenting the members of our bodies to sin to use as instruments of unrighteousness. We no longer use our mouths to slander and deceive or our minds to covet and to lust or our hands to steal and to strike or our feet to leave our loved ones that we've committed ourselves to and to go into places that we ought not go. We don't offer our bodies and our resources as implements of unrighteousness anymore because we're not bound to that anymore. No liberated POW would go back to their former captors and say, reporting to work. I'm, I'm going to do another day in the gulag. I'm going to do another day digging trenches. I'm going to subject myself to your tyranny. They've been liberated. They've been freed. They've been emancipated. They've been delivered. And they wouldn't use their time, their resources, their effort, their energy to go and to serve those that only meant them harm and ill. And that's what Paul says we do when we voluntarily go back to sin. Don't do that. God has given you a mind and talents and resources and time and energy and opportunity and all the wonderful things we're blessed with to use for him and not for the ways that you used to use them. Don't use them as instruments of evil anymore. I'm sorry, I just had a, David, uh, what was the two girls? I will not be a pawn for the prince of darkness any longer. Indigo girls, thank you. Yeah. I will not be a pawn for the Prince of Darkness any longer. I saw that on a shirt once and wanted to buy it off the person's back. Don't be a pawn for the Prince of Darkness any longer. You've got a better game to play. You have a better master to serve. You've been redeemed, and if you've got rocks and stone like Ewoks, then use it to serve the Jedi and not the Empire because you've been liberated. The witch is dead. Don't be munchkins who continue to serve the wicked witch. Aslan has come and thawed the statues because he overthrew the white witch. Go and delight in Aslan. Don't go and serve the dwarves and the wicked trolls. Don't do that anymore. Instead, we present ourselves to God as those alive from the dead. Imagine for a moment that you were Lazarus whom Jesus called out of the grave. 
How would you have looked at and lived life differently when Jesus summoned you out of the crypt? Do you think you would have had a bit more boldness in telling people about Jesus? You think you would have been a little bit more inspired to tell people the good news of the possibility of resurrection from the dead? He just experienced resuscitation, but he was a believer now. Do you think that made him a better husband, a better father, a better brother, a better friend, a better worker, a better employee? Do you think he loved God more? Because he lived it. You think he put his old baptismals or his burial shrouds up on the wall as a trophy over death? As a conversations piece? What's that? Those are my burial cloths. What? Yeah, I used to be wrapped in those for days. And why are you out of them and why are they there? Because a man named Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And he came forth. And he lived life differently because of that, didn't he? We have been brought alive out of spiritual death. We were dead to the things of God. We have been made alive in Jesus Christ. And therefore, we live that way because of Easter. Jairus' daughter, 12 years old, dead. The desperate father calls to Jesus. He comes and raises his daughter. How might Jairus' daughter have lived her life differently knowing that she had died and called, been called back to life by Jesus? Do you think she was a bit more submissive to her parents? More helpful around the house? Think that had an impact on the spouse she chose? <laughs> and the wife she was, the mother she was, the way that she devoted and lived her life to God? She had been one who had been resuscitated. But that's true of us. We've undergone a spiritual regeneration that's the anticipation of our resurrection into a glorified body someday, and it should have an impact on the way that we live our lives. We should not live the same as a result of that. And instead, we present the members of our bodies as instruments of righteousness to God. God, here's my mind. How can I use it for, how can you use it for you? Here's my sight, my mouth, my hands, my feet, my time, my resources, my education, my social capital. Lord, how can you use this? What would you do with this? Let me do good with this. We've been redeemed. We've been resurrected. We've been regenerate. Let us serve our deliverer and no longer continue to serve the one that held us captive. That's what this passage is calling us to. All of our eyes, all of our hands, all of our feet, all of our gold, not might, one might would we withhold, but we offer it all up to God to serve him. And the reason we do these things is that sin shall not be master over us, for we are not under law, but under grace. We're no longer under that old covenant of law that we couldn't obey. We are under the new covenant of grace that now gives us new abilities to obey God. We get to walk in freedom now. We have been liberated, we have been emancipated, we have been delivered, we have been rescued, and therefore we are to live as such because that's who we are in Christ. That's the significance of Good Friday and Easter. That when we come to Christ, we are identified with Christ in his death and in his resurrection, in his resurrection so we die to sin and rise to walk in newness of life. One of the early debates of the early church was when to celebrate Easter. And... Because Easter is so, or Good Friday is so closely associated with Passover, and Passover is always celebrated on 14 Nisan, there were those in the church that said, in order to keep the significance of Christ's death as our Passover sacrifice, 
We need to celebrate his resurrection on the third day after 14 Nisan, even if that means we have Easter Monday, Easter Tuesday, Easter Wednesday, Easter Thursday, etc. But the majority of the church said no. We need to celebrate Easter on the Lord's Day because that was the day on which our Lord rose from the dead. And these Jewish Christians, after millennia of celebrating a Saturday Sabbath, all of a sudden begin celebrating the Lord on Sunday. If you were trying to grow a new religious movement in a Jewish country, in a Jewish capital that had just crucified your Jewish king, the worst thing in the world you could do is change the day from Sabbath to Sunday. That would not have scanned. I've got a new marketing idea. Why not to distinguish ourselves from the Jew, we're going to go against the law of Moses and against the order of creation. We're just gonna shift the holy day one day to Sunday. It's madness, it's crazy. But they felt compelled to do it because that was the day on which the Lord rose. And because every Sunday therefore reminded them that they served a risen Lord. And every Sunday should have the same significance for us. Easter is more than a holiday we commemorate once a year. Easter is an annual commemoration of a daily reality that because of Jesus Christ and because of our identification with him and his death and resurrection, we every single day consider ourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Jesus Christ so that we might walk in newness of life. We live Easter daily. As Christians, we herald Easter daily. And every week when we celebrate the Lord on the Lord's day, we remind ourselves how to enter into our new week to serve him afresh according to who we are and not who we were. If you're here today and don't know Jesus Christ as your savior, I have some very good news for you. God brought you here today to hear good news. That's what the word gospel means. That there is a God who exists eternally. He is the only enduring thing that is always everlasting. And he made this universe to make this earth so that he could make men and women in his image to have an intimate relationship with him. But we disobeyed God. All of us disobey God. We have all done things that we shouldn't have done. We have all failed to do things that we should have done. We've all done things approximately right with approximately good motives. None of us are holy as God is holy. None of us are righteous as he is righteous. None of us are perfect as he is perfect. And none of us love perfectly as God who has loved us. But God so loves us that he sent his son to become a person, Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life that we could never live, to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, to rise from the grave to demonstrate that God had accepted that sacrifice on our behalf so that now he offers every single person a gift. It's free. There's nothing you can do to earn or deserve it. You don't have to go on a pilgrimage. You don't have to make a sacrifice. You just have to, in the quiet of your heart, receive it by saying, God, I'm a sinner. And I can never stand before you as my judge in my own good deeds or merits. I ask Jesus Christ to be my Savior. Forgive me. And in that moment, your sins will be forgiven. Your Certificate of debt will be canceled. Everything that you have ever done that falls short of God's glory will be wiped away and you will become a new creation in Christ and you will be adopted into the household of God. 
and you will be a new creation in Christ with the Holy Spirit living within you to help you become the person that you always want to be. And one day when Jesus returns, you will be with God forever and forever and ever. If you have not done that, would you please not leave here today without asking someone how you can do that? And let this Easter be the day of your spiritual rebirth. And for those of us who have made this decision, let this be a day of rededication, of, of renewal, of recommitting ourselves to God, of embracing the truth of Good Friday and Easter, of dying to sin and rising to walk in newness of life, and committing ourselves by God's grace to go on living with our Easter identities from this day forth, day by day, until the glorious day when Christ comes back for us. Would you please pray with me? Father, we thank you for these beautiful truths. We thank you for a gospel that is better news than we would have ever imagined or dared dream. And yet, Father, it's hard to live them in a world that's so distracting. So we thank you for the clear teaching of your word. And we pray that this day we might become more mindful of what you've done for us, of our identification with Jesus Christ, of our death to sin, of our resurrection with him, that we might each day walk in newness of life. Help us in this, we pray in your son's name. Amen.